Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your host, Mike Walker, and I'm here with Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? A great quote is, do what you like, talk how you like. And it works in today's, with today's theme, which is going to be, is the hate the right move for Simon? And today's feature game is going to be... Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant. But first, games we played this week and then some news. So what did you play this week, Mark? Uh, this week actually has been a bit of a slow week for me. I've had a lot of uh, things going on, but I did get Sakura Arms back to the table. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is the two-player card battling game by AEG and uh, Back of Fire. And it keeps growing on me. Every time I play it, it reveals itself a little more subtly. Some more details emerge. I'm able to track the evolution, you know, the knowledge evolution of the game. I start out not knowing what my opponent can do, but then I gradually learn a little bit more as time goes on. I think it's great. It's quick. It's fast. It's uh, it's a wonderful game. What did you think of it? I loved it. I got to play it. It has a, a whole bunch of different fighters. You get to pick two of them. And I think that's really what's going to keep it coming back to the table. Because how the different decks will interact with each other and how they interact against your opponent's decks and it'll keep it interesting i'm looking forward to playing it again there's all sorts of more mechanics in it but well even even within a, a fighter normally a game like this you know Battlecon or yomi or something like that it's a lot of the variety is in terms of which fighter you select but i've played the same fighter several times and the fighter just as a reminder for those that can't remember the game or don't know every fighter gives you access to a library of cards and then at the start of the game you pick which cards are actually going to be in your deck and i've played the same fighter multiple times because she's one of my favorites but which cards you include radically changes the way you can play uh whether it's about exhausting your opponent's deck, whether it's a lot about reversals, whether it's a lot about sheer offense. Anyway, as I say, the, the variety keeps impressing upon me with this game. I've only played about half a dozen to ten times. I'm looking forward to seeing how it's going to hold up, but I've been very impressed every time. And I'm glad you enjoyed it, too. All right, we got Blood Rage back to the table. And it's uh, my analogy is like having coffee with an old friend. I know it's a newer in, the, in our hobby. It is really a, a newer game, but it was really just one of those things where the mechanics just really work. And it's, in my opinion, a very tight game. I know there are some cards that sometimes throw it for a spin, but I think there's enough of them that everyone gets one of these, you know, these cards. And once again, I was just one of these things where like, why do we not play this more often? Did you play it with any of the modules? Did you play it with Mystics or the Gods? No, well, we thought I thought we were playing with Mystics because I thought I had integrated it into the deck. So I said, take all these, you know, all the five plus cards out because we're only playing with four. And I thought they were in there. And I went over the rules with everyone. I just didn't bother to actually look in the decks. And then once we got started, I like, you know, looked back in the box again and said, oh no, there, there's the cards. So no, unfortunately, we didn't play with any of them. But we did. I went over with. Went, went over them with everybody, so next time, if we ever do get it back out, we can bring the gods out, which don't really mix things up too much, you know what I mean? Like, it, I think it adds, just adds, I don't think it takes anything away from the game, and the mystics, like I said, is just more of the same. So you you approve of both of the expansion modules? For sure. Yeah, I don't know. I've uh, I've only played once with each, I think, and uh, I'm interested in trying more, so maybe when it does hit the table again and you play with mystics, I'll, uh, I'll join in uh, and see what's what. With my inferior copy? With your inferior copy, I might have to bring my Fenris, uh, just even if he's not involved in the deck, just so Fenris can watch the board and... uh, Make sure things are going the way they should. Well, also look down on the fact that you have a whole bunch of cardboard markers where they should be plastic. It's... uh, It is sad. It's it's sad and shameful. And uh, Walker is uh, wiping his eye with his middle finger very prominently, so I think it's time to move on. It's how I cry myself to sleep every night. As well you should. 
I played Assault on Doomrock last week, introduced it to a new player. Assault on Doomrock is a very, very strange, both in terms of mechanics and in terms of setting, adventure fantasy game where you have a party of adventurers and go try to go kill the, the, the last encounter. It's bizarre both in terms of its sense of humor. It's, uh, just as an example, uh, everything, almost everything has the uh, suffix of doom. Um, which is not particularly clever, but uh, I did get a, a solid groan from the table when my fighter was able to to equip the Fifty Shades of Great Axe, uh, which was actually uh, quite useful. Anyway, groan. Yeah, it's a lot of the humor's grown really. I like it. <laughs> Some of the monsters you might be fighting involve things like exploding tomatoes or the shark tornado. And uh, which is, which helps temper some of the game's brutal difficulty. Uh, the game is the honey badger of board games. It just don't care and it will kill you. And uh, but I, I I love the game. I did a video of review review of it uh, a while back. It's really good. I've actually had not much success introducing it to other people. In part again because I think it's so strange, both tonally and in terms of mechanics. But that's actually what I appreciate about it. It's got this great abstracted um, grid uh, uh, movement system. So you're not worried about grids or hexes or anything like that. It's all about an abstracted relative positioning system that nonetheless manages to capture a whole lot of flavor that you might want out of a fantasy game. So you can cover things like backstabs and encircling motions and charges and ranged attacks and not being able to attack when you're in melee, things like that. But without any of that awful rules nonsense that often accompanies it. Because I, for one, and I've said this before, I'm tired of counting squares. I'm tired of having a movement allowance of four squares and counting your range and how far you can go and one, two, three, four, okay, that's too far, etc., etc. Uh, but I'm I enjoy Doomrock every time I play it. It's probably one of my favorite solo games. It solos really well, and because Walker's my only friend and he doesn't even like me that much, I have uh, plenty of opportunity to to, to pull it out. Uh, so it uh, it continues to please even after uh, after I've failed to get it to catch on with so many people. This time though, the person I showed it to really enjoyed it. So there you go. That's good. I, like I was want to keep making this point. In co-op games, I really want to lose ninety percent of the time. Yeah, for me personally. Yeah, I, I know that's you know that's not for everyone, but if I'm not losing ninety percent of the time, then I am not having fun. I know that's weird and sadistic, but that's just the way I am. I'm not that strong, but I am disappointed if I win the first game. If when there's a game with the possibility of getting better, and the first time you play, you win. It's like, well, what what horizon is there for me? Unless the game is really good at introducing other difficulty levels. The only exception to this that I found is actually Spirit Island. And I know we're not on the same page with Spirit Island, but Spirit Island is sufficiently involved that I'm able to forget that victory is almost guaranteed at, at difficulty level zero, which is the, the, the base level difficulty. Uh, but yeah, most of the time, I'd rather a game... Well, I think that's why I'm I'm... Reserved on Spirit Island from now because I've not witnessed a game that has been lost or, nor played a game that I've even come close to losing. So. Oh, I can solve that. We can fix that right well, quick, I'm, Walker, I'm hoping, if you want. I'm hoping in their next game they'll be solved right quick. Sure, no this, problem. This is actually segueing into my next co-op game, which is Imperial Assault. We played Imperial Assault again with the app. It wasn't a great experience for everyone at the table, but it's, like it's, it's one of these things where it's an, 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 uh, an just a piece of technology that doesn't know exactly what's going on in the game. It knows that none of us have been wounded yet. It knows that, you know, it, it only knows what it can. And in co-op fashion, all it can do is throw crazy random stuff at you when it thinks you're doing well. So I was, I think it was a fine, I think there were some things that we did wrong, but I still love it. I think the Imperial Salt app, even if uh, you haven't tried Imperial Salt or if it's sitting on your shelf and hasn't come out, you should really try this app out. I think they did a fantastic job and I hope they uh, keep maintaining it. 
I don't know if this was a problem with the app. It sounded like it was a problem with the scenario design. Having heard the, the, the details, it's basically one of those escort missions. First of all, escort missions are almost never a good idea. And basically what the escort mission did was it stripped you of any ability to protect the, the it, people you were ex- escorting. And at that point, you just have this rigid timer. Enemies show up, do random nonsense, and you lose. I mean... True. There was other things that happened before that was the, like the precursor to the mission that we also failed at. So it might have... Okay. It might have wanted us to fail. It might have been one of these things where you just... They wanted you to pull out what little kind of victory you could type thing. Maybe. 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 What do you got next? We continued our Charterstone campaign. And we talked about this a little more after playing it a couple times. We've now played it once more. And uh, suffice to say that our initial verdict, and I think you put it very, very well when you said this seems like legacy for the sake of legacy, is uh, more or less continuing. The information load is very light because it's a very light game, but it's handled so poorly that it is often difficult to make sure that you're, you're following the rules correctly. And there's just not a whole lot there. It's a very light worker placement game that you've played a bunch of times before. But, I mean, it's still very cute. It's it's it, lovely artwork. Putting sticker on, stickers on things is fun. Yeah, I'm really hoping that this like this story arc goes somewhere. Because if it doesn't, it will be very frustrating and, uh, and uh, disappointing. I, I will say, having you mentioned this actually when we were talking about it in the podcast. And I'm very glad that I, I paid attention to it. If you do just pay more attention to the kind of evolving ominous notes of the story, no spoilers. That is kind of cool. You know, just 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 know to emphasize the bits that work as opposed to the as to many, many bits that don't work. And then it's a, a certainly a more pleasant social experience. We have had also more uh, recurrences of that problem whereby maybe the resources that you've carried over in the campaign mean you're almost guaranteed a victory condition right on turn one, which is desperately unsatisfying. Uh, More on all this later, actually, when we start talking about hate. But uh, it does seem to be a a serious problem with with competitive campaigns. If you're able to carry over resources, that's a hard thing to balance. All right. My last game is going to be Great Western Trail. I'm not going to say too much about it because we've talked about Great Western Trail before. Still... Loving it. Tried a new strategy, and it was super fun. So that's Great Western Trail. You're bringing cows to the market. You're managing your hand. You're putting obstacles in the way of other people. Fantastic game. Well, that's it for me for games that I played last week. So let's move on to the news and why it doesn't matter. What have you have for the news, Walker? Oh, you're going to let me go first? I'm going to jump in and, and talk about, I know, something that we're both, I, we haven't talked about together. But. Va- value this moment, Walker. This is the one day a year <laughs> when I'm going to consider your feelings, thoughts, or even existence. Don't let it go to your head. So, I can see it spoiling you already. Oh, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> it was a mistake. All right. So there is there was once a man called Reiner Knizia. And yeah, he, he died in nineteen in uh, 2005, didn't he? And he bestowed upon us this game called Tigris and Euphrates. And he has graced us with yet another game that's going to be coming out called Yellow and Yancey. And it's going to be like a sister game to Tigris and Euphrates. I really don't like the, the tone that the some of the news feeds of going with, that it's just yet another like re-theming or re-skinning. I think if you enjoy Tigris and Euphrates... And you're introducing this to people. I would not even mention Tigris and Euphrates because sometimes it puts a sour taste in some people's mouths for some unknown reason. But I'm really looking forward to it. It's hexes. It's area control. It's going to be just more. I'm just lo- really looking forward to it. I've not looked 
I've not looked forward to a game in a long time. Like I'm, you know, looking forward to packages, looking forward to seeing new stuff, but looking forward to actually playing a game. This has been the first one in quite a while. Yeah, me too. Uh, I normally don't like turning our news section into hype segments, but I am absolutely thrilled. Now I'm not, in terms of the actual uh, evolution of the Tiger King Fatty system, I'm only sort of cautiously optimistic because it's hard to improve on what I consider to be a masterpiece. But some of the changes definitely seem to be just interesting in terms of variety, like uh, going from squares to hexes. That's going to change things up. There, I, Having read the rules, there are a number of very interesting rules changes that possibly might make the game uh, rather more difficult to teach and play. It might make it slightly less difficult to teach and play. The, the proof will be in the pudding, as they say. I'm super excited uh, to see it. This is going to be put out by uh, Grail Games this year. And it's uh, they, they've, they're reprinting Stevenson's Rocket, which is an underappreciated Knizia game that I really like, uh, which is really sort of an economic knife fight in a toll booth. It's really, really, really tight. It's a, it's an incredibly simple game. All the complexities in the scoring, which is not true of Tigers and Euphrates. Most of the time in a Knizia game, the actual rules of the game are incredibly brutally straightforward, and the scoring is the complicated bit, which is actually often a very nice balance to strike. Tigers and Euphrates is, if anything, of his meteor games, quite the opposite. And Yellow and Yangtze seems to be the same way. I mean, it's got basically the same scoring system. But yes, I'm, I'm so excited. I don't care about uh, the, the, the retheming. And, uh, well, actually, just th- this is worth noting. Reiner Knizia seems to take theming very, very seriously when he's designing a game, which makes some of his final products all the more mystifying because you can't see any evidence <laughs> of that right. often. Um, and he he apparently did a bunch of research on the period of history that this game is meant to represent, this, the, 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 the time of the Seven Warring Kingdoms, and indeed seven kingdoms start out on the board and it's in the same rough geographical area but then the moment you get to any sort of historical representation then the question then pops up who are the players who represent these five different colors and anyway it's it'll probably be a hash of it even when i think that kinetia gets a game roughly thematic i think that it's often a hash of things but uh yeah it's gonna be released this year at gen con and i gotta say i'm so excited about this game i am half considering going to gen con to pick it up early yeah i don't want to be i don't want to i was anti-hype train so i don't want to go over the top with this but definitely play before you buy oh yeah if uh, you're interested at all check out tigers and euphrates and uh look forward to this great game what do you got for your next one mark so another bit of news this one is actually uh really sad and unfortunate uh, some of you may have noticed over the course of the past week we're recording this on the 22nd of january but over the course of the of, of the past week uh, bgg has been very 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 unstable and the there have been a lot of time-out errors. This is because Board Game Geek has been the subject of a distributed denial-of-service attack. And uh, apparently a very dedicated uh, army of bots has been overloading it with page requests. And uh, as of as of this recording, the tech, tech team either doesn't know or will not disclose who they think is responsible. And of course, it's a thing that's very difficult to find out. That's the nature of DDoS attacks. They don't even have uh, any sort of public comment on why they think this might be happening. This appears to just be the kind of thing that major websites get subjected to because people are jagoffs on the internet. Uh, but uh, congratulations, BGG, you've made it. This is why we can't have nice things, Mark. What are an army of nerds going to do for when they need to log every play of the game they played if there's if the website is down? If there's no database, how will we get our information? Maybe we're going to have to take up the slack. That's madness. Yeah. 
All right, what have I got for news? We just talked about Great Western Trail. They announced an expansion for Great Western Trail. More cows? Different colors of cows? Different cows. Different, you know, instead of bringing the cows to alien overlords, maybe you're bringing the cows to the mafia so they can be sold on the black market. Maybe uh, you're underselling this, Walker. Maybe this is the, the this is finally maybe, the alien overlords I was expansion. Say, I was say maybe they heard and they, yeah, that'd be amazing. You yeah. can assemble a big cardboard UFO that, that sits atop the game and like, you feed cards into it. I like where this is going. And then you hit the button and they all eject out and it's like cow parts. And then you have to assemble your cows into these monstrosity. Okay. Stronghold. Are you listening? <laughs> Walker can be had very cheaply, I know. Another thing that's happening, and this is this is more a personal note. Uh, so the latest Kickstarter that seems to be blowing up uh, the platform is Nemesis. And I, just, I don't quite understand the enthusiasm for a number of reasons. Among them is, and I hate to say this, but the publisher just doesn't have a track record worth backing, really. Uh, their past projects, they've delivered basically one past project. There are two that are coming that have both been delayed, of course. Speaking as a Canadian, uh, they don't have customs-friendly shipping. When I got their uh, package from this war of mine, uh, I got d- I got dinged with a forty-dollar customs surcharge. Which, when you're paying a pretty penny for shipping already, can be catastrophic. This is a, a this is also a semi-co-op game, and semi-co-op games have been notoriously difficult to balance. Anybody who's played Dead of Winter and paid serious attention to the victory conditions there, and notice how they were wildly out of whack, some being almost impossible to fulfill under certain conditions, and some being incredibly trivi- uh, trivial to fulfill under certain conditions. This game seemed to have, ha- seems to have the exact same problem. Their response to people pointing this out, there was an excellent thread on BoardGameGeek detailing from uh, playtesters who, who dealt with the print-and-play version, going in very nice detail about how, well, th- th- this is why this one's problematic, and so on and so forth. Their response to that is, you don't know what you're talking about, more or less. And uh, trust us, guys, we've played a lot of games and we know what we're doing. Anyway, it's already, it's 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 well in excess of two million bucks, heading towards three. I don't get it, man. People like pretty stuff, but uh, I do not understand the enthusiasm for this. Yeah, I think we're, we're almost at the glut of these, you know, giant miniature co-op one versus many games. I don't know how many you can have on your shelf. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. With all that in mind, let us proceed to our feature game. And our feature game, as I mentioned, and indeed only I can mention because I don't think Walker knows the full title, and for this I cannot blame him, it is Sidereal Confluence Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant. This is by uh, uh, Tau City Dykeman, put out last year by WizKids. This is a game I've mentioned several times. I mentioned it when I've played it, and I've mentioned it during the year-end list. And this is the first time that we're both in a position to comment, uh, because Walker hadn't really been exposed to it much at the time. But I've I've, I've sat him down in front of... Uh, the, the large tableau of cards, and I've forced him. He's you know tried to look away or, or wander off, but I've, I've smacked the back of his hand every time to, to get him back to, to, to that table. Uh, so let's start off at the top. It is indeed a trading and negotiation game. It's got a, a very, very pronounced sci-fi theme because everyone is playing a different alien race, and it's got heavy, heavy asymmetry. And uh, it's mostly about taking cubes and turning them into other cubes, which... And I realize this pitch is not making it sound very good. So with that in mind, why don't we just start with Walker's thoughts on the game? Uh, Oh, my thoughts. I was just going to go over on what you do in in this game. uh, You're going to be, first of all, you, uh, it's the big trading phase. And I think this is the majority of the game is talking to the other players, uh, switching up your cubes, and then you're going to work your engine. You have all these different cards that you can upgrade into different technologies. And it's mostly just working the cubes to make other cubes. 
and all the detail is on the card, how good of uh, a trade-up it's going to be. And you do this for a number of turns where you're going to get more technologies and hidden victory points. And when the game is over, who has the most victory points wins. Like you said, everyone's playing an alien race that is completely different. And that is Sadirful Confluence. <laughs> Almost. The that best part in, uh, in, uh, about this is on BGG. They have the entire, they have the entire uh, name on the on the sidebar and i think that is amazing i think i think it's an inside joke for them as well because in every other game they always put a short form or something else this one they've put the entire title so it takes up like half the block it's amazing well you have to include the trading and negotiation in the elysian quadrant to differentiate it from all the other sidereal confluence games uh you know sidereal confluence the farming simulator sidereal confluence the 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 auction game you know it's just it, it's very important you don't want you don't want to get confused in the market that's so true yeah you, you can tell that a game has a great name when they have to include dictionary definitions on the back of the box. That is the sign that you've got a great title right there. I I feel kind of bad for ragging on the title so much, but it deserves it. All right, I'll hit my points, and then you can tell me how wrong I am. You go for it, Walker. All right, so I think this is one of these games where you're either going to you're going to love it or not love it. You're not, you're not, <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm just saying. I know that seems generic. What I mean is that you're not going to hate it because there's not there's not anything to hate in this game, right? All the game mechanics are there. It flows well. It's well balanced. All of the I think they have tons of different aliens. I think they're all very well balanced. So it's I think it's either going to be your cup of tea or it's just not. Like for me, so I think it's just very much like Cosmic Encounter, where it's very heavy on the negotiation. And if negotiation like I don't want to say being the bully at the table, but being heavy, talking all the time and trying to convince people, you know, to make trades or to attack people. If that's not your thing, then I just think it's not the type of game for you. It's interesting. So let's talk about that comparison, because I think there's some some interesting stuff there. It's very much like Cosmic Encounter in that a lot of the game is designed around its asymmetry. Now, it's more subtle than Cosmic Encounter, because in Cosmic Encounter, everyone has something that clearly breaks the rules of the game. That does not happen in Sidereal Confluence. What happens in Sidereal Confluence, and having played a number of times and I really, really enjoy it, is that the nature of the economy that you're going to be having over the course of a game is almost entirely defined by which alien races are in play. For example, uh, there is two of my favorite races. Well, I, I love them all. But two of my favorite races are the Eniet, who are the charitable uh, giant whale squids who uh, have, who, their, their economy is largely based on, on, on charity. There's these networks of charitable organizations. And the Photoron, who are kind of the elder race who organized the, the different races to get together into this weird sort of cultural and political experiment. Both of these economies run on, to, to no small extent, on white cubes. So there's six different colors of cubes in the game. There's other resources besides, but... If both of those races are in the game, especially if it's a smaller game with fewer players, white is going to be extraordinarily scarce, and it is going to command huge prices in the trading phase. But if it's a larger game, and or if neither of those two races are in play, white might be trash, and nobody has any interest in it, or at least not 
there there will usually be some outlet for for using these things. Nothing is ever completely useless, but compared to a previous game where it was it was it was the most valuable thing in the game, it can be quite different when it's less valuable. And so that degree of variation of being able to and and of course these details in turn might change over the course of the game. Someone might invent a technology, and now suddenly everyone has access to something that makes use of white, or everyone might have access to a technology that produces lots of white, and both of these can change the economic impacts. So in terms of being able to react to how the economy the economy is evolving and that level of asymmetry is indeed very pronounced and it's one of the things that I that I sincerely enjoy. As far as the you're mentioning bullying, I agree with you that Cosmic Encounter is very much about bullying. I, I like Cosmic Encounter as well and I, I get a lot of flack for liking it, but I do enjoy it. I don't know that Sidereal Confluence has been described by the designer as a competitive game in which the person who cooperates best wins. It's one of those things where you're really not encouraged to drive a really hard bargain over every trade or to be a hard ass about everything. It really is about trying to maximize the number of deals you can cut. So I, I, I don't quite understand what you mean by bullying. Well, that's what I said when I said bullying. It wasn't quite the right word. I just mean if you're more socially inept, like if you're you can put yourself out there if you can interact with people better, if you don't mind, you know, being the bad guy or being the good guy or, you know, taking over the table type thing, then I think it's going to be an advantage to you. What are you saying about me, Walker? I have nothing about you at all, Mark. Why are you looking at me when you I said those say, things? Did, Why were you pointing at me with both fingers while you were... Did we play this were... game together? Was, were you, you were in that game. I, I totally have forgotten. So let me tell you what you think. This is not a game about bullying, and I am not a bully. And sorry. if you say that, I... Good, good, you should be sorry. <laughs> Stop crying. All right, next point. There's tons of all these different aliens. Great theme. They all they all sort of their special abilities sort of reflect their story and everything else. But then when you get into the game, you have all these different colored cubes, which are fairly meaningless. I'm not sure if in the rule book they give them names or anything, but they really do not interact with each other in any way whatsoever. Then they give you these little ships that are completely meaningless as well. And then has what I hate on top of everything else. With all this going on, right, you can play up to how many players? Nine. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even want to say that. Um, so you have nine people. You have this yelling going around the table. You have all these different alien races with all their different powers. You have all these different engines going on at the same time. And then they throw into the mix hidden victory points. Now, I hate hidden victory points off the top, right? And their people's justification is, well, you're supposed to be watching the table and seeing what people are doing and seeing, you know, what kind of victory points they're getting. With all this going on, I really feel that is impossible. But, okay, but here's the thing. It's hidden victory points help it as a trading game because there's a perception. Compare this to, say, Monopoly or Catan, which obviously are two very easy, easy fish in a barrel. But there's often a perception in games like that if you know who's winning that you don't want to trade with them and in a trading game where you have heavy incentives not to trade then the game can just stall and then nobody has any fun yeah don't get me wrong like i don't want to it's this is why i'm just saying trying to describe why this game's not for me if there was not hidden victory points in this game it would quickly fall apart exactly for those reasons that you just mentioned so let me ask you this. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to some of those other things because I think you raise uh, very valid points in a number of those things. Are there trading-heavy or negotiation-heavy games that you like? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Fair enough. No, that's reasonable. Like, look, trading, trading games and negotiation games are a very specific kind of thing. 
and they're not to everybody's taste. And they're especially not to everybody's taste when we're talking about two solid hours of it. I've heard reports from some people on the internet about having games of Citadel Confluence that lasted like three hours. I don't know how that's possible, but it is a solid two-hour game. Every game I've played with any number of newbies, I've played games from four to eight, uh, they've all lasted two hours. After the rules explanation and setup, uh, it's been never more than 120 minutes. With I, I also played a game of seven with highly experienced players, and it lasted about 90 minutes. Because, you know, we all knew what we were doing, and we all knew what trades to do, and, and running the economies was all straightforward. Exactly like you said. As long as you have a whip that, you know, takes care of the trading phase and, you know, locks down the time on that, then I can't see it taking more than two hours. Ever. Yeah. And it's... It's strange because I've been thinking a lot about trading games and why this game works when other ones don't. And I really think that it's it's the asymmetry that helps helps drive it. Not just in terms of the powers, but again, in terms of the inputs and outputs that your particular engine is able to put out. Because if a potential good or a potential item or a potential thing is equally valuable to everybody, then that makes trades really hard and really painful. And it encourages you to just sit on what you have. I said the same thing about the game Empires talking about badly named games, uh, just the, the WizKids game of last year simply called Empires, where all the resources are worth roughly the same to everybody, and so no, everybody sits on everything. In Sidereal Confluence, the economy is greased just right, where, where there's minimal friction in terms of trading, and that's really the way you want it to work. And that asymmetry is often introduced rather clumsily in other games. For example, Chinatown, which is a trading game that I'm not especially enamored of, in part because all the goods get, take on different values more or less randomly because you just get a random assortion of plots and you want adjacent plots. You want to line them up and you, you either get them or you don't. Uh, you generally don't and that's why you trade. But similarly in Chinatown, you're able to look and see how much money everyone is sitting on in terms of victory conditions and everything becomes calculable. And you don't want a trading game to, to break down in a situation where you know exactly what everything is worth. You want a certain amount of that opacity so you just know whether a trade is good for you. And if it's good for you and it's good for the other person, then by all means, go and do it. Maybe it's just the the naive capitalist in me. No, uh, I think they did a great job of that. Like you said, without the hidden victory points, it would blow apart. And, and I think it flows very nicely. And it's open as a result to truly... Er Every range of deal, from the very small, I will trade you one small cube of this color to one small cube of this color, all the way, if you want to, and the game doesn't force this on you, this is one of the things that experience really opens up, where, okay, I'll give you these cubes and this card this turn, and you run it, and you give me half the proceeds in this other card next turn, and in turn, I promise you that three turns from now, this thing is going to happen. And I've seen some truly amazing deals. I've never been able to do them, because I don't have a mind for that. I'm very... I'm very sort of about marginal gains. It's like, okay, I can get this thing done now, and that makes me happy and immediate gratification. But I've seen some really amazing triangular stuff go on in this game, and it's very satisfying. I will go back to one thing you said, though, about the theming of the game, and I agree with you that it's a bit of a shame that there's all this flavor in terms of, you know, you're given this sheet at the beginning of the game that explains what your race is, what their culture is, what they want out of this so-called confluence that's coming together of these different cultures, how they approach interstellar travel or things like that. And then you spend two hours talking about, well, I'll give you a white for a brown. It's like, okay, well, here, here we go. And all of the cubes have a different title. And they're called different things. White is culture, for example. But, you know, you're going to forget that in half a second. And that's okay. That's kind of by design. What is really unfortunate, though, 
And whether this is actually an unfortunate omission in the core game or just a, an extra bonus is, is up to you. But every piece of technology has this subtle line drawing about how every race approaches things differently. For example, in uh, when you invent genetic engineering... Everyone gets genetic engineering. Everyone gets that technology. But every race does genetic engineering slightly differently. And so every race has a slightly different line drawing on their card of genetic engineering that is impossible to see because it's covered by the background graphic of their race's icon, which is the same on all their tech cards, and just the pictures on the card about how genetic engineering works. These cubes go in. These cubes go out. What you have to do, and I sincerely recommend this to everybody who's played the game or is even remotely interested in the game, go on BoardGameGeek, check the wiki. There's a wiki for the game where the designer has written tons of great stuff about every race and how they do very specific things. It's almost like the sci-fi equivalent of an Eklund game where it's just a lot of thought has been given to all these details. It's a shame that it's nowhere inside the box. I don't, this, these, this would definitely not improve, I think, Walker's play experience because, again, it's about, you know, shoving white cubes in and then a couple of black cubes and a yellow cube comes out. But it certainly makes me more enthusiastic for the universe, if that makes any sense. Having a heavy negotiation game that came to mind was Diplomacy. I don't know if you can, we can shoehorn sure. this in as an example of a comparability, but, you know, it, it is a heavy interaction between people. You're negotiating, giving up, you know, support or, you know, land in order to get support. And I really enjoy that game. So, do you find you're able to? Because you made a you made a good point. Negotiation and trading games are often about the first mover advantage. It's about someone being able to get to the table first uh, and get a vision about how things are going to work. And it's like, okay, well, I've got these goods. I'll give them to you, and and you know, you just go and get there and corner the market before anyone else can. Not in an overly aggressive or hostile way, just because they're able to move faster. I find the same is often true of diplomacy. You know, people are able to look at a map, see the diplomatic opportunities, and then make first contact as it were with the necessary powers to get things in play do you find do you find that you have a similar difficulty in getting things done in diplomacy? sometimes but sometimes you can use that to your advantage and you know do like backhanded deals and you know use that aura well this guy's winning or this guy's and you know and use that against them or use it as an as a you know influence to help you get forward that is a good point against- i think i think because there's more time and influence, you know, it's a very speed. You got to get in fast because if that, because it happens in real time, it's not as though you're writing down all these deals and then they all happen. You can't go back. Once a deal's made, then it's done. It's like, okay, well, he doesn't have that cube anymore and that guy traded for that cube, so he needs it and it's gone. You're right. It is true that games of diplomacy or even social deduction games, if you're talking first, talking most loudly, getting things done, that can often come to bite you. Whereas in Sidereal Confluence, it's a cooperative game. It's a it's a competitive game where you cooperate with each other. So if you're able to get deals done quickly, people tend to look kindly on that rather than the other way around. So that's a that's an interesting asymmetry. There is one thing, one other thing that I'd like to point out though, and this is uh, especially because I find this really fascinating. This is this is a difference in gamers that I'm finding increasingly interesting, and maybe someday we'll talk about it as as a main topic by itself. And that's how gamers deal with information overload. Which is, there's there's also a, a side question to that is, when do gamers experience information overload? I've gamed with some people who just seem like super geniuses because they're able to track everything. They never get overwhelmed by any amount of information you throw at them. But you've made reference a couple times in this game that you're going to end up with a lot of cards in front of your face. And it's true. Not only is this, is this game a, a table space monster, but by the end of the game, you start off with, you know somewhere between three and five cards. But every turn you get more and more and more and more. And by the end of the game, you can have easily 20 plus cards in front of you that each do different things. 
And how people react to that, I find fascinating. Some people break their brain by trying to track everything when they're not able to. And I find it really interesting when someone's inclination to track outstrips their ability to track. And then there are some people who, once that kind of information shows up, they shut down and they just pick somewhat arbitrarily two or three things that they're going to track and that's all they're going to do. Sometimes they like that and sometimes they don't. I've known lots of people, especially when they're playing a game for the first time, they're like, I've decided to ignore 90% of the game mechanics, but I had a good time anyway. The way Citadel Confluence handles it, first of all, is rather interesting because you can kind of set your own pace. You use cards to upgrade other cards. You discard the cards and upgrade something else. So the way I do it, personally, and I have a great deal of fun doing this part of the game too, I kind of sort of try, not very well, to get a sense of what cards I can use, and then I look at all the other cards that I can't and figure, okay, how can I trash these to make the ones that I am using better? So it's an interesting built-in way to sort of throttle the information overload to your own taste. That having been said, a lot of people do get seriously overwhelmed, and I respect that. But watching people deal with being overwhelmed or how what what heuristics they make use of, I find endlessly interesting. Uh, So for what it's worth, if you have people that only that that like big decision spaces, this is probably uh, a game for them. If people get angry or hostile towards big decision spaces, keep them far away from this game, because if you're not able to control your your little corner of the universe and try to try to pare things down to where you can understand them, then this game is going to be slow torture for you. I feel the meta for that game would be. Uh, determining what resource is going to be not used by the majority of the particular races that are that. Like in our game, it was like yellow. There was yellow everywhere and no need yellow. And then quickly utilize your engine to use those resources, right? And yeah. I think that would be the meta. That's what I mean. When you're talking about the other thing, that's what I do in overly complicated games. I say, I really like think that mechanic is really cool. And I want to implore that or try to break that or find out if, you know, that's been developed any further to interact with the game. So I'll just concentrate on that one part of the game and have fun doing that. And then over, you know, a series of other games, if I enjoy it and play it again, then incorporate the whole thing. Yeah. So Real Confluence is very much a game that you can play on different levels, both in terms of what cards you're going to employ, what cards you acquire, where you're going to get your points. And I've played with people who really were just comfortable with a very, very tiny corner of the game. Some people liked that, some people didn't. And I've also played with people who've played dozens and dozens of times, and they were pulling off deals that I could only barely begin to understand. But it was a joy to see. And the the great thing is, again, just demonstrating how this is a game that's very cooperative in a lot of ways. Games with experienced players, everyone's scores go up. The experienced players win more often, of course, but just because they're there and just because they can see those opportunities and help other people with those opportunities, everyone gets to do better. And uh, that that's a sign, I think, personally, that it's a pretty good economy, that there's a solid economy running in that game. Yeah, I think all the scores were very close in our game, so that's why I, I was quite surprised at the end. I thought it was going to be, you know, range from, you know, zero to whatever, but everyone was very close, so... Yeah, and even, that's off to the designer and, for sure. And even when it's not, there's a lot of pleasure just being able to run your own economy if that's if that's what you're interested in doing. And it's in everyone's interest to help you run your economy because then there's just more goods for everybody. Yeah, I'm very I'm I'm very sad that it's not your kind of game, um, but I can I can completely understand why. I remember thinking after playing New Angeles, which was uh, a fantasy flight design from a few years ago, that I actually I, I thought was really good, but it's three hours of heavy negotiation. And for me, that was a that was a little too much even for me. And at the end of the game, everyone was just exhausted because three hours is a lot. 
two hours is not a small amount of time to be spending negotiating, but it seems to be a lot more accessible. I've been, just as I've been disappointed that you didn't like it, I've been surprised at the people who do like it. There's been There have been a lot of gamers that really... Uh, generally tend to prefer much lighter games that love Sidereal Confluence. Uh, and so if you're even remotely interested in this kind of thing, I encourage you to check it out. And the fact that it plays from 4 to 9, you have to admit, is impressive. Yeah, it scales very well. Yeah. Any other closing thoughts on Sidereal Confluence? Yeah, yeah. So if you like Pit, or you like Cube Pushers, or you like uh, the game that I can never remember, this will be the game for you. Which is weird because I, I don't like Pit and I don't like Cube Pushers. I swore off Cube Pushers <laughs> entirely. And now I've fallen in love with the most Cube Pusheriest game I've ever played. I think I think it was done with Cube Pushers at the time of Kalos, for crying out loud. It was Kalos that made me realize I'm done taking cubes and turning them into other cubes so I could turn them into yet other cubes and then I get point, points at the end of it. And so when this came along, and I remember when it was explained to me, I thought, I am going to hate this game. Hate it. And I adore it. So I think my mind specifically blocks out Cosmic Encounter because it just does not want to <laughs> deal with that game ever again. You're not alone. It's a very divisive game. All right, so our topic this week is something. I'm not sure what it's going to involve into. We don't talk about what our, we, we have a headline and then we go into it. So this week, Simon has released a new Kickstarter called Hate. I don't think you're saying it right. Hurt. Is that yeah. better? Yeah, I, right. think that, I think that's more accurate, yeah. And I know this will be hard for some people to, to believe, but the internet lost its shit for some unknown reason. Well, yeah. in my opinion, unknown reason. And I want to steer this in this conversation into, into a certain direction because I really don't want to talk about the game because I know I've watched a bunch of playthroughs. I've read, you know, things about it. And the game is the game. And how the video was produced is how the video was produced. I, I don't really care about it either. Like I said before, say what you like, do what you like. What I'm, what I would like to talk about mostly, what we can talk about many things, but I want to talk about is this a right move for Simon? And is this a type of game that they want to associate with their main brand? I'm not saying that this game shouldn't be produced. I'm not saying it shouldn't be out there. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't have this tone. Tone is the word I'm going to use for this game. Uh, what is it? Like, so maybe some people haven't seen it. Uh, they put it, the video they put out with the Kickstarter, they use, uh, they drop the F bomb three times and a whole bunch of other language. I don't have a problem with this. I would like to comment a bit about the video, though, because I think it'll we'll come back to it later. The thing that is striking, though, is it drops the F-bomb, but in a way that like a 12-year-old would, right? When grown-ups swear, or when people who are accustomed to certain language use words, they just use the word. And they might just say, they, they're just going to effing use the F-bomb. They don't say, I'm going to effing use the f-bomb like yeah. that that just it it makes you look ridiculous it is does. the problem for sure there is no doubt about it it is ridiculous on all accounts so i would suggest if, you, if you're offended don't watch it but watch it. it is truly a hilarious video to see not as funny as the highlander the board game video that's another one you should check out for for good giggles um so yes so my main point is going to be subsidiary companies there have been many companies that have made subsidiary companies in order to produce games like this. Subsidiary. Subsidiary, sorry. Subsidiary companies. Mark, talk how you like. Um, F you! <laughs> um, 
So there was a game called Hole that White Wolf, not only did they make something called Black Dog Games, but even Black Dog Games didn't want to put this out, and they made another company in order to bring this game to market. I'm not going to go through all the other examples, but there are hundreds of different, even comic books, the Image Comics, Marvel has a, a, a subsidiary company that they put out other racier comics with, uh, movies like Lionsgate, Miramax, these are all companies that were made in order to put out different products so they would not reflect badly on the main company. And I'm wondering if this is not what Simon should have done. They it was already, It's already being put out by Guillotine Games, why not? You know what I mean? I know, I'm, like, I, I'm not sure. What do you think about this, Mark? Well, I think it's very simple why they've decided to position it the way they did, and that it's, it, it is entirely due to Eric Lang. They are trying to capitalize on his name recognition. So the names of the designers, you, you don't hear the names of the designers nearly so much, or even the name of their collective guillotine games, nearly as much as they talk about Eric Lang. And he's there in the in in the, the how to play video and all that nonsense. He's their head of game design, which means he's basically doing development work. And I've commented before that I think it's a shame that developers don't get their fair due, but I've also commented that good game designers don't necessarily make good game developers and vice versa. So I think the reason why they're doing it the way they're doing is they're trying to position this game as having the same design. Like they're playing fast and loose about whether he's a designer uh, in, in a number of in a number. Of, I don't know if it's deliberately attempting to be misleading, but it's kind of weird how often his name is mentioned in conjunction with this product, despite the fact that he is not actually a designer. Uh, so they mentioned his name. They mentioned Adrian Smith. And I think what they're trying to do is hope that people think about Rising Sun and Blood Rage. I really think that that's why they're positioning it the way they are. Because on their own, the last thing that Guillotine Games is primarily known for is Massive Darkness, which pulled in Big Bank, but ne- wasn't necessarily as good of a, a critical success as they might have liked. And it's also worth noting, even though it pulled in a lot of money, it didn't put a, pull in nearly as much money as Rising Sun did. So I think that explains why they're doing it the way they're doing it. Just the money, the well, dollar. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not. No, but really, that's you know what I mean. I they, don't. They, mind. Want, they were trying to get the most exposure, get the most press for this game, and well, they want well, to relate it to their other products. Well, what's wrong with that? Because they have shareholders. This is a pump company that is traded on the open market. But their responsibility to their shareholders is to make money. That's the moral responsibility that exists between the company and their shareholders. Now, you might think that it might backfire, costing them money in the long run. My objection is purely one in terms of proper attribution, in terms of editorial attribution for good work that's done. I used to be an academic. This stuff is seriously important to us. Uh, And in terms of, you know, building the careers of these other French dudes who actually designed the game, it's kind of unfortunate that you always hear is art by Adrian Smith and, you know, the developer is Eric Lang. And all of those things are true. And, of course, Adrian Smith's art, you know, deserves whatever recognition it gets, although more on that later. But you don't hear so much about guillotine games. You never hear about Raphael Guiton, Jean-Baptiste Lugin, Nicolas Raoult, who are actually the people who designed it. And the reason why, I think, is precisely because they want to run up the numbers as much as possible. And that's fine. I've got no problem with the profit imperative. And as you say, because of shareholders, they even have a, a, a a bit of a moral imperative towards the profit imperative. I'm just a little bit, I'm a little bit uncomfortable at, at the way they're playing fast and loose with attribution. Maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe I, I'm getting a, a weird impression and no one else is, but everybody on Board Game Geek certainly seems to be talking about this as almost as though it was an Eric Lang game. And I think that's because Simon has done a good job of confusing the matter. 
and like I love the one line. It's like, oh, we're we're working on the final. We're working on the final revision of the rule book. We'll we'll put that out in the final week of of the campaign. Yeah. Like, like seriously. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, they do that all the time. They did it that way with Rising Sun. I think they did it that way with with Blood Rage. So let's let's put things in context. I actually looked this up. So Hate is currently sitting on seven hundred thousand bucks, uh, more or less. And uh, in in context of other campaigns, so we can expect that number to roughly double-ish because most of the, the money that a campaign gets is in the first 48 hours and the last 48 hours. I heard someone break it down that say you can roughly break it into chunks of thirds. You're going to make a third of the money right away, a third of the money in the slow middle, and a third of the money at the end. And some of that is influenced by things like optional buys and so forth. Uh, but we can assume that, that it's probably going to crack a million where it ends up in a million, who knows. But... This is well in excess uh, of what Blood Rage actually got. I looked up Blood Rage for for all its influence in the market and for all all the hype that Simon is giving it now in its future Kickstarter campaigns. It only raised nine hundred and five thousand dollars. Now, part of that I think is because the base level pledge for uh, Blood Rage was a lot lower than the base pledge for these other games, and so you know that that's more or less inflation. But even if you account for that and multiply that by another third. Uh, you know, you're still you're still getting up to just barely over a million. So maybe hate is going to end up at roughly the same level. Rising Sun, of course, pulled in 4.2 million, but that was because you know everyone was was anticipating that specifically because that actually was Eric Lang and Adrian Smith. Over and there was now. a lot of add-ons. Like I was looking at some of the numbers too. If you I will take a look at the actual backers, the backers for hate is huge. It's true. So here, here's what I think about hate in terms of its positioning overall. I really think it's like the mortal combat of board games. Back in the 90s, board games hadn't yet been fully mainstreamed. I mean, there's certain things that we take for granted now in broadly speaking geek culture. The mainstreaming of comic books, the mainstreaming of video games. Everyone's a video gamer now. They might not identify themselves as such. It's like, oh, I don't play video games. I just play Candy Crush. Congratulations. You're a video gamer. Um, you know, the average video gamer now is, is uh, I think, in their 40s. It's Part of that is just the gamer's aging, but part of it is just it's a mainstream appeal. Everybody plays Solitaire, plays Candy Crush or whatever game on their phone. Board games are definitely not there, and I don't know that they ever will. I don't think that board games are ever ever necessarily going to break through in the same way. Though who knows? I could be wrong. Um, but we're we're in a hobby that is potentially on the bubble of going somewhere else. We've talked about the increasing influence of hobby games in big box retail stores, and to me, this game, both in terms of cultural development and in terms of its market positioning, reminds me a lot of how Mortal Kombat was marketed. Mortal Kombat was a mediocre one-on-one fighter. The one-on-one fighter genre had already a number of good titles, mostly Street Fighter, but there were also some other ones. And Mortal Kombat comes along and says, we're mature! But mostly what they meant was they were juvenile, right? Like cartoonish blood, bad, uh, uh, weird fatalities, a cheesy announcer, stuff like that. And in terms of all of that, I, I thought it was fine. Like, it's enjoyable. I like cheesy nonsense as much as anybody else. And, and of course, at the time, I was a teenager. But even then, I, I knew bits of it were, were honestly very cheesy. But... In terms of a game, it wasn't all that solid. It was a bit sloppy in a number of places, and it was trying to it was trying to make bank and get notoriety based on 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 its quote unquote mature content. And I look at the promotional material for Hate, and I think it's in the same position. It's like we are so mature and hardcore now. It's like oh, fine, whatever. I mean, 
it, it I, I think it really is trying to get notoriety out of that. Now, as to the actual game itself, we can we can put that aside. But it's one of those things that, in, in an effort to show how mature it is, just reveals itself to be juvenile. True, it could be that I was reading up on something about how war gamers are aging themselves out of the market, how they're not including you know the younger players when you see war gamers go off it's a, a very older crowd and they're you know they're aging themselves of the market i'm wondering maybe you're right maybe this is a play for a younger audience right because maybe they feel as though maybe they're watching a demographic information that we don't have they're watching a demographic of just normal board gamers getting into an older age bracket and they want to make this game for a you know a younger market i don't know it if that is their intent it strikes me as a bit strange because this is not exactly new territory in terms of even just in terms of tabletop gaming the tabletop war gaming even if we want to look at that specific sub niche like this is just corn times a thousand you know corn from uh, uh the, the warhammer universe this, and this honestly is my biggest complaint visually with the game because again we don't know how good the game is going to be i have my doubts but whatever we don't want to talk so much about we don't want to review a game before it's been released that's unreasonable but my biggest disappointment in terms of the visuals of the game is we've seen what Adrian Smith can do, and this game just seems hopelessly visually one note. It's just incredibly homogeneous. Once you've seen a whole bunch of, you know, cannibal berserkers with big bladed weapons, like how many... There's not much room in there, and I think we've seen that because they've produced dozens and dozens of very high-quality, well-rendered miniatures for this that, honestly, I cannot tell apart. They all look the same to me. And that wasn't even true of Blood Rage, where they're all just Vikings. But there was some degree of visual consistency amongst the tribes, and so you could kind of sort of tell them apart. Uh, maybe that's just because I played Blood Rage and I haven't played Hate, but honestly, it just seems so repetitive. Everything's the same. Do you feel as though this might be their answer to, like, they've Games Workshop has Shadespire and their other one-on-one combats and Fancy Flight is have uh, Imperial Assault and all their other competition-type games? Do you think this is maybe they're, they're trying to push into the market of having this campaign-style, one-on-one skirmish battle-type game? It's tough to say. I think, honestly, in terms of the original editorial or creative impulse to bring this game to market... The serious consideration really was, hey, Adrian Smith, what else you got? I really think that that was the sum and total of how this game came to market. What else you got, Adrian? And Adrian says, well, I've got these graphic novels. And they say, okay, let's make a game out of it. Because Kickstarter is a visual medium, and there's demand for Adrian Smith, and they knew that they'd be able to attach Eric Lang's name to the project somehow, and they figure, well, there you go. This is the magic that brought us $4.2 million. Uh, and, you know, Blood Rage was their first really big breakout non-zombicide success, and so they're just chasing that dragon. I think that's what's driving it. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, because if if I'm right, then we're just going to be seeing, you know, whatever Adrian Smith has got in his back pocket over and over and over again. True, I and I don't want this to turn into like a, you know, a Simon bashing segment, but I'm wondering, they have all, they have all these Kickstarter uh, projects, and... They have tons of these stretch goals. I'm wondering, they must have a ton of backlog of miniature designed already, like in order, you know, in case they hit further stretch goals. Because not as though, you know, these concepts or or art's going to suddenly come out of nowhere. They've got this stuff ready. And for all the ones they don't hit, they probably, they said, oh, we have all this backlog stuff that didn't come out for, you know, Black Plague, all these, you know, guys. You know, I'm just wondering if all this stuff is just rehashed stuff that they just couldn't get into other Kickstarters as well. I think they know enough about the platform to be pretty close, but I agree. There's there's something going on. 
And if they're willing to engage in excess development work that they know they're not going to be able to take, take advantage of, and that's fine. That doesn't bother me. I know that some people on BoardGameGeek, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about the reaction on, on the, the, the forums, both there and, and elsewhere, uh, about the game more generally. But some people get really, really mad. It's like, well, they've already designed it, so why don't they just give it to us whether they hit the stretch goals or not? Eh, I don't care. If if they don't, you know, if they planned enough stretch goals to get them to 1.8 million and they only hit 1.4, and so there's some stuff that stays on the cutting room floor, and they're happy with that, then I'm happy with that too. I don't I don't object. I don't feel cheated or swindled or denied value. No, that's right. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying like I'm saying I'm sure it just keeps keeps on their top shelf and they just incorporate it in their next project. Yeah, it could be. And besides, it if you've got a team of sculptors working for you more or less full time and you just hand them a, a block of resin and say, hey, sculpt this thing, and then they don't end up producing it so they don't have to, you know, fire the molds and cast everything, it, it doesn't cost them a whole heck of a lot. It just costs them some labor, but if you're a big enough company, that's not a huge deal. But I don't understand. So having said all this, there's one thing I'd like to flag, and that is there seems to be a fair amount of hand-wringing about the theme and about the, the you know the, the the presentation of the acts depicted in the game. Two things. First of all, I don't share the concern because I don't think that this is a game that glamorizes or encourages you to do anything bad. So it's squarely in the same category as all the other games that feature killing and all, all kinds of other things. I played Assault on Doomrock. You do you commit a lot of violence in Assault on Doomrock. I don't think that it's a problematic uh, game. Similarly, uh, you know, whatever happens in hate, fine, whatever. It's I, I've enjoyed movies and, and comics that are similarly... Or video games. Or, or video all games. All the rest of it. Yeah. Like, and I don't want to get into the psychology of all this nonsense, but I will say this. I am a bit disappointed that hand-wringing about hate is often lumped into the same category as people objecting to the representations of women in games. I know that you and I don't see eye to eye on this topic, Walker, but I would just like to say that to my mind, there's a difference between acts depicted and how you're going to depict the people who might be playing your game. And when a game is showing a whole bunch of barbarian, cannibal, zombies, whatever, uh, that's fine, whatever. I'm not worried about accessibility issues or representations of, of barbarian, cannibal, zombies in games. I am, however, concerned that in a male-dominated hobby, we still do see women regularly only depicted as sex objects. And to my mind, that's the difference. I'm in favor, as you say, say anything, produce anything you want. I'm just of the opinion that we should try to exert some market pressure to improve some things in the hobby, but not not others. I'm just, the dominant thread seems to be amongst m most gamers is that nothing in a game can ever be problematic. That's not the line I'm taking. Uh, hate doesn't strike me as problematic. Uh, there, was a, there was a similar comment to get yet even further in a tangent, but damn it, it's my show. I can say whatever I want. Uh, there was a similar comment by a, 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 a war gamer I very, res very much respect named Chris Farrell, and he was talking about how he feels more and more uncomfortable playing American Civil War games because how they're often very ahistorical or a-contextual, and they don't and they often lionize Southern Confederate generals. And in a political environment, he's an American, in a political environment where there's a lot of revisionism about the Civil War and how there's a lot of lionization of a lot of things in the Civil War and of Southern Confederate generals, he feels very nervous about playing uh, Civil War games. On the other hand, playing a World War II game is a lot less problematic because everyone's on the same page about the Nazis. No one's playing the SS and figuring, oh, these guys must not have been too bad after all. But there are a lot of games about Robert E. Lee that basically say he was a fine dude and everything that the South was fighting for was A-OK. -okay. Anyway, not to get too much deeper into those in those topics, but 
while I agree that there's no reason to get upset about hate and there's no reason to think that, oh, you know, they should be ashamed for producing such a thing, I do think that there should still be standards of decency in the production of these things. I just don't think that there's anything to object to in hate. It's just weird escapist violent nonsense, and that's fine. Yeah, I, I didn't see anything that was morally objectable in hate whatsoever. I think it was just comical and funny. Yeah, like they could have made something very similar to hate and it could have been objectionable. Like, for example, uh, you know, if the game featured a lot of ways to, uh, I don't know, if, if they'd been cavalier about sexual assault, for example, if that was a thing that you could do in the game, as, as I'm sure exists in Adrian Smith's universe, like whatever, you can tell a story in which everyone's barbaric, but... Well, I think that's why they mostly went with a, a male cast in hate. At least I, I think there are a few female characters, but I think that that's one of the reasons why they might have went with mostly male characters, because you are dragging people back to your huts and yeah. and torturing and eating them. So I think that's why they sort of you know, could be went in one direction rather than the other. Yeah. Like there's a way I, I still think regardless of your, your topic and your tone, I don't think any topic is taboo, but there are ways to deal with topics that, uh, that are more respectful and less respectful. And I'm not going to say that hate is respectful of much of anything. It's just, they, they do seem to have understood that, you know, there are some lines even in fiction that are probably not best for the, uh, to, to cross just for the sake of the audience and for the sake of the people playing them. And maybe but, that's why their video is like that. They wanted to make sure people understood that they're going over the top, that this is supposed to be taken you know, on the surface and not maybe, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I'm not, I just don't know. It's very confusing. I, I still, I still think they're trying, they're trying to earn like seriousness cred that, you know, board games are now a mature medium and we can talk about anything. And instead it's just as a, it, it just seems juvenile, honestly. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I agree with you that again, not to review the game before it's released, we're in a really, really good position for two-player skirmish-type games. And, uh, you know, Shadespire is just the the, the latest, and in some ways, uh, one of the better ones. And it's going to be uh, supported uh, through the future. So, speaking personally as a consumer, I don't see a, uh, any any reason to jump on this, especially because, again, it's so visually homogeneous. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, as I've commented before on this very podcast, I'm dubious about campaigns and legacy elements. So I'm very much in a wait-and-see attitude on that. Uh, but uh, next month, Shadespire is going to get two new armies. So, uh, you know, game on. Yeah, well, that's what I... I uh... I put my money down for hate right off the beginning, and then I just realized it's A, two-player, and B, would be directly competing for table space with Shadespire, so I just I just had to let it go. We It is worth noting, though, in terms of, of giving Seamon uh, its due, they are being responsive to fan demands. I noticed that in uh, recent stretch goals, the first thing they did was they unlocked a set, second board, so you could play two two-player skirmishes in tandem off the same box. I thought that was a very nice concession. And now they're developing three- and four-player scenarios. Now, in my experience, when you take a two-player game and try to graft on a three- and four-player mode, it usually ends up disastrous. But they're trying, at least. Yeah, so no, I like I watched the the how to play. And I, I think it's going to be fun. I'm really I'm looking forward to playing it. Like, okay, you know, nice basic hack slash do your thing, and hopefully it doesn't go very long. Because if it goes long, then yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I I I was wondering, and I've been wondering this for years. I wonder if there is a market. Or if there's a, a viable design space for a campaign-type game that positioned itself and tried to have the virtues of a campaign-type game, but where the resolution phase, the sort of the sort of fight, was really, really, really fast, like incredibly brief. Because one of the disappointing things about um, Kingdom Death Monster, for example, and you've commented on this before, is fights are basically a gear check, and you make some decisions, but there's not, there's just it's more time than the actual game really deserves. 
And uh, I do like... Well, Mighty Empires. You remember Mighty Empires from GW? No. And that's all it was. It was a campaign system. The fights were, you had this huge number, like 10,000 or 24,000, I think I remember. And uh, you just flipped up cards. And depending on what kind of flank attack thing, you you know compared the different maneuvers and how many troops you did. You know, the A lost that many, B lost this many, and off you were to the next campaign turn. Was it any good? Uh, like I said, every time the dice are rolled and a 10 comes up and it's not doubles, I think of Mighty Empire. So there was something about Mighty Empires that... That, you know, is still in my brain. I I always loved it. Everyone's crazy about campaigns and everyone's crazy about legacy elements. I wouldn't mind if they were trivial, if they were really, really, really quick. Just the, the resolution mechan- uh, mechanisms. And I was wondering if, uh, if hate was going to be that. But the battles do seem a little bit more in-depth. Whether it treads that line, whether it's the thing where it's, you know, too long to be incredibly simple, but not long or in-depth enough to be really satisfying, who knows? I think it's the other, I don't, yeah, we shouldn't talk about it. About the actual game mechanics. But I think it looks like the other way around. It looks like the game's more in-depth. and It looks like they've really tried to trim down the actual campaign part. You know, you get these upgrades, boom, you're into the next fight type thing. Maybe. Well, we... Uh, I, I, I will say, though, in terms of detail, every all of my concerns about time, campaign-type games that I voiced in our previous episode do seem to be pre- present here. You know, someone might get an early lead. The benefits seem to be compounding. Because say what you want about Charterstone, and I often have. It at least makes an effort... The winner in Charterstone gets less goodies going forward than the losers do. The losers all get to improve their core stats, and the winner doesn't. So uh, hate seems to do the opposite. If you if you win, you seem to compound things. I initially thought, when watching the How to Play video, maybe that they were going to do something whereby the scenarios themselves were going to make it so that the winner probably lost more people. And that, I thought, could be potentially interesting. Like, you'd have to burn population and upgrades in order to get the scenario win to, to advance the thing. But, nah, not so much. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll play it. I'm sure someone in our group will get it, and we'll. Uh, I'm sure you'll hear about it soon. Yeah, in about 17 years when it actually uh, shows up. That's right. <laughs> uh, Kickstarter and delayed gratification. And Chinese New Year. And Chinese New Year. Absolutely. So that just about wraps us up for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. As always, I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and you can reach me on Twitter at all the games you like. You can find my co-host, Michael Walker, by email at justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can find us collectively, where our powers combine into a Voltron of terribleness, on Facebook, which is where we curate most of our comments. We do read everything you send us. We try to get back to you as as often as we can. We love suggestions about games you'd like to see covered, about topics you'd like covered, uh, about how much you hate all of us and uh, wish us pain and misery. All of that is very much appreciated, so please get in touch with us however you like. And if you like this podcast, tell a friend. And if you don't have any friends, keep listening to the podcast. Peace. Take care. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.